Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. The goal of this podcast is to help you understand the literal sense of scripture. In accordance with the teaching of the church, we always need to start with the literal sense. What did it mean in its original context? So we have a longer one to look at today, so we'll get straight into it. Luke chapter 3 verses 10 to 18. And we're also going to include verses 19 and 20 to finish off today's reading. When all the people asked John, what must we do? He answered, if anyone has two tunics, he must share with the man who has none. And the one with something to eat must do the same. There were tax collectors too who came for baptism. And these said to him, master, what must we do? He said to them, Exact no more than your rate. Some soldiers asked him in their turn, What about us? What must we do? He said to them, No intimidation, no extortion. Be content with your pay. A feeling of expectancy had grown among the people, who were beginning to think that John might be the Christ. So John declared before them all, I baptise you with water, But someone is coming, someone who is more powerful than I am, and I am not fit to undo the strap of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn in a fire that will never go out. As well as this, there were many other things he said to exhort the people and to announce the good news to them. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he shut up John in prison. So, what's the context here? Luke has introduced John the Baptist in the previous verses, and John the Baptist has just said some quite harsh words about the necessity of for repentance. So in verses 7 to 9, he said to the crowds, You brood of vipers, any tree that does not bear good fruit will be thrown into the fire. So if you want to hear those strong, those strong words of John the Baptist, you can get access to that through the Patreon page, and there's a link for that in the show notes. So we're going to hear today some words of John the Baptist, which are only recorded in Luke. There's some interesting interactions here between John the Baptist and the crowds. Verse 10, when all the people So that's all the people who have been listening to John. And Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel tell us that this includes people from all over Israel. There's people from all over the area coming to hear John. It's not just a small group of people. When all the people asked John, what must we do? So the people here have been convicted by John the Baptist. And he's been talking about the need for repentance in order to get into the kingdom. And now they're feeling convicted. They realize that that's what they need to do. So now they ask John for advice on what specifically that means. What does it mean to repent? This is similar to people who will later ask Jesus basically the same question. They say to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? If we keep in mind that in the Jewish mind, eternal life and entering the kingdom are the exact same thing, this is the same question that the people are asking John the Baptist. When they say, what must we do? They're basically saying, what do we need to do in order to be saved? So we should listen to John the Baptist's answer here. So John the Baptist is going to give some examples, some specific examples of what it means to repent for certain people. And in particular, you'll notice that the the things he mentions here are actually a kind of penance for sins previously committed. So penance is an interesting aspect of uh, repentance that we don't often talk about, but it looks like 
John the Baptist has in mind here doing penance. Verse 11, he says, If anyone has two tunics or coats, so these are like the outer garments that were used to keep people warm, and really a person only needed one. So John the Baptist here says, If anyone has two tunics, he must share with the man who has none. So John the Baptist here, right in line with Jesus' own teaching, says that a person who wants to enter the kingdom of God must give to the poor anything he does not need. Now, that's a pretty high standard, but it seems to be what John the Baptist is saying. Anything you don't need, you must share with those who have none. That's a key part of entering the kingdom. And the Catechism actually talks about this. And then he goes on, And the one with something to eat must do the same. So the same principle applies for feeding the hungry. This highlights one of Luke's key themes in his gospel, which is Luke has this strong concern for the poor and the outcasts of society. And so you see this in the conversation he's recorded between John the Baptist and the people. So he's just spoken to the crowds in general. Now he's going to speak to specific groups of people. So verse 12, there were tax collectors too. So tax collectors, of course, were known as notorious sinners. Most of society would say that this this is one of the worst kinds of Jews because they worked for the Romans, so they're traitors. And not only that, many tax collectors would take excess money, more than they should, in order to line their own pockets, basically. So tax collectors come for baptism here. So they've been convicted by John, and they want to be baptized and repent. So there's probably many tax collectors here who have done terrible things in the past, but they're genuinely convicted by John the Baptist's message. Interesting how people are drawn to, it's almost a fire and brimstone message that John the Baptist gives, but people are drawn to it, and it really helps them realize that they need repentance. So they call him master or teacher. What must we do? So maybe the tax collectors recognize that their occupation is problematic, and they're wondering if they have to quit their job. Maybe that's what's in their mind here. That would be quite difficult, because their job is what's sustaining their families. So They're probably wondering, is John the Baptist saying we need to quit our jobs? So we should listen to John the Baptist's answer here because many Christians today are probably in similar positions where they work for companies that are quite immoral. Verse 13, John said to them, exact no more than your rate. Or you can translate this, collect no more than is appointed you. So what's John the Baptist's answer to what the tax collectors need to do? He says that in order for them to carry out their job in a way that's acceptable to God and to stop being sinful, they need to collect only what is strictly required for the tax, as in they need to do what's required for their job, but don't take any extra. That's his teaching to them. So his basic answer, if you think about it, to the tax collectors is this. You don't have to quit your job, but you personally need to carry out your job in a godly way. That's his answer. And that's probably the same answer that we should listen to today. You don't have to quit your job if you work for a company or a line of work that sometimes does problematic things, but you personally can't get involved in those problematic things. And obviously that could be teased out more in terms of uh, material and formal cooperation and that kind of thing. But the principles of it are starting here. Now, Luke is going to later give several examples of good repentant tax collectors. So Levi in chapter five or Matthew, he's also going to talk about the tax collector in the parable in chapter 18 And then Zacchaeus, the tax collector in chapter 19, they're all tax collectors depicted in a positive light. So again, you see Luke's concern for the outcast. Verse 14, some soldiers asked him in their turn, what about us? What must we do? 
Now, it's not clear whether these are Roman soldiers or Jewish soldiers. There's two different types of soldiers, and it could be either here. Given Luke's concern to show the inclusion of the Gentiles in the kingdom, it's most likely that these are actually Roman soldiers who have been stationed in the area and have been convicted by what they've heard John the Baptist saying. And if that's true, that's quite remarkable that the Roman soldiers have been convicted by this Jewish preacher. What does John the Baptist say they need to do? He says, no intimidation, no extortion. So it's an interesting translation there in today's lectionary. More literally, what John the Baptist here says to them is this, rob no one by violence or by false accusation. So it was a common practice amongst the Roman soldiers to abuse their power through threats and violence. They would take people's money by threatening them with violence. So John the Baptist basically tells the soldiers, don't use your authority falsely to take things from people for yourself. So he says, don't abuse your authority. That's his answer. He doesn't say, don't work for the Romans. He could have said that, but he doesn't. He says, don't abuse your authority. Just do what your job requires. And then he says, be content with your pay. So why does he say this? Maybe the soldiers were underpaid, but that's probably not likely. Probably what he means is that these soldiers have a tendency to be greedy and steal people's money. So he says, just be content with your own pay. Now, once again, later in Luke's gospel, Luke is going to show soldiers in a positive light. So there's a centurion in Capernaum in chapter 7. There's a centurion at the cross in chapter 23, depicted in a positive light. Also Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. And then the centurion Julius, who treats Paul kindly in Acts 27. So Luke continually talks about these good Roman soldiers. The implication here, given everything that John the Baptist has said, maybe the implication is that these occupations, tax collectors and soldiers, are not wrong in themselves, but the behaviours are. That's probably the best way of thinking about it. Another implication, though, is that the things John the Baptist has told them to do, the acts of penance that they need to do, If these people don't do what John the Baptist has told them they need to do, they haven't actually repented, and therefore they're not going to enter the kingdom. In the Gospels, repentance and actions and doing good works are all very closely tied together. So if these people were to be baptized, but then to go and continue stealing money, then according to John the Baptist, they're not going to enter the kingdom because they haven't really repented. Some scholars think that since John the Baptist here has addressed tax collectors, soldiers, and the crowd in general, he is in a sense addressing all of us. He's addressing all persons and professions. But it seems that in particular he's addressing those professions that were not well regarded at that time. Verse 15, a feeling of expectancy had grown among the people. Or you can translate this as the people in expectation. So everyone there, the crowd, has understood that John the Baptist is preaching that the kingdom of God is close. They understand that that's what he's saying. And so now they're all looking for the kingdom of God. The Jewish belief at the time, and we've talked about this in previous episodes, is that the kingdom of God is going to come suddenly in an obvious way. So they're all looking around thinking, is the kingdom going to come today? Is John the Baptist about to bring it in? And they're actually beginning to think that John might be the Christ. That's what Luke says. Christ or Messiah. So some people there naturally are thinking that John the Baptist is the Messiah. Another translation of this is all men questioned in their hearts concerning John, whether perhaps he were the Christ. So the Jews at the time understood that the kingdom of God would be brought about by the Messiah. They knew that. So it's logical for them to wonder, given that this man is preaching about the kingdom of God and he seems to know what he's talking about, maybe he's the Messiah. 
Now, we get to see this interaction in more detail in John chapter 1. They actually ask John the Baptist directly in John chapter 1, verses 90 to 28. They say to him, are you the Messiah? So there's actually a conversation that goes on where John the Baptist responds to that, but we don't get to see this in Luke. Now, as is evident from later in the New Testament, many of John's followers actually continue to believe that he's the Messiah. Despite what John the Baptist says next, he will actually come right out now and say, I'm not the Messiah. But still, for the next 40 years or so, many people continue to believe that John the Baptist was the Messiah, even after Jesus comes. And in the book of Acts, they're still trying to deal with this. Verse 16, John declared before them all, I baptize you with water. And in the previous episodes with John the Baptist, we've talked about how uh, Jewish people did already have their own kinds of baptisms. And John the Baptist is kind of continuing in that tradition by baptizing with water. And the key thing with his is that it's a baptism for repentance. I baptize you with water, but someone is coming, someone who is more powerful than I am. Or we can translate this, he who is mightier than I is coming. So again, people here believe that John the Baptist is the Messiah. So John the Baptist here says, no, someone mightier than I is still to come. And obviously John the Baptist here is inspired by God in a certain way. He's got foresight that the Messiah is soon to come. But in the meantime, he has to continually tell the crowds that on the contrary, he's just preparing the way for the Messiah. John is emphasizing to the crowd this, if you think I'm good, then wait until you see what comes next. The true Messiah is coming soon. Some scholars have pointed out here the word he uses, mightier, he who is mightier than I, is typically only used of God. That's in Deuteronomy 10 and Psalm 24. So maybe, maybe there's a subtle hint here that John the Baptist understands Jesus to be God. And then he goes on, I'm not fit to undo the strap of his sandals. You've probably heard this quote before. So in that culture, the most demeaning task a person could do was touch his master's feet. It was considered to be gross and kind of not something you want to do, to touch your master's feet. But John says he's not even worthy to do that for the Messiah. This phrase, I'm not worthy to undo the strap of his sandals, shows up in all four Gospels. So therefore, it seems to be, for the early church, this phrase seems to be a very important summary statement of the relationship between John and the Messiah. The Messiah, Jesus, is so far beyond John the Baptist that John is not even fit to undo the strap of his sandals. John the Baptist goes on, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John the Baptist says, I will baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. When John says this, he's not trying to imply that the Messiah will not use water. That's not the contrast he's setting up. He's saying that the Messiah will impart something that he can't. The Messiah is going to give you something more than just a water baptism. And what is it? It's the Holy Spirit, basically. The teaching here seems to be that the Messiah's baptism will be a supernatural baptism, and we understand this to be a sacrament, in which God himself will be imparted. John's baptisms and all the other baptisms that existed at the time were only shadows of Jesus' baptisms. And this is developed more in the book of Acts particularly. The Holy Spirit is fully imparted on Pentecost. And uh, after that, Jesus, uh, the baptisms of Christians in the name of Jesus have a genuine supernatural component. And there's a lot more that could be said about the theology of John the Baptist's baptisms and Jesus' baptisms as well. But certainly the clear teaching here is that John the Baptist's baptisms could not baptize with the Holy Spirit, whereas Jesus' baptisms could. 
Now, this notice the phrase here, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Ezekiel 36 in the Old Testament links the outpouring of the Spirit with water. So already there's hints in the Old Testament that there'll be a time coming in the kingdom of God when water will be poured on people and that will involve the Spirit. Joel chapter 3 mentions this and Zechariah 12 mentions this as well. All of these Old Testament prophets promise that God will pour out his Spirit in the last days so that they may respond to him perfectly and experience his blessings. And John the Baptist now says, the Messiah will give you Holy Spirit and fire. Well, spirit and fire are usually associated with purification in the Old Testament. So maybe the teaching here is that the Messiah's baptism will bring about purification. Maybe that's what's meant. But also spirit and fire were associated with judgment. So, and that would fit well with the next verse. So it's not clear exactly what John the Baptist means here by fire, but given what he says next, it probably is a reference to the Messiah will be a judge. Now, this particular prophecy of John the Baptist, he, uh, he will baptize you with Holy Spirit and with fire, is repeated several times in the New Testament. All four Gospels mention this, and Jesus himself will later say it in Acts chapter 1 verse 5. So now we get to some more heavy stuff. Verse 17, John the Baptist says, his winnowing fan or winnowing fork, and this is somewhat like a pitchfork, really, if you can imagine a pitchfork for this scene. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. So this is an, this is an agricultural metaphor that the people of John the Baptist's time would have been quite familiar with. So what would happen in this time period is when a farmer was harvesting wheat, often the bad bits, which is called the chaff, would cling to the wheat. So the farmer needed a way to separate the wheat from the chaff. The farmer only wants the wheat. So to separate the two, he would take his harvest to a big open area called a threshing floor. And then he would throw the harvest, all of it, up into the air using a winnowing fork. And then the chaff is actually lighter than the wheat. So the chaff gets blown to the side when it gets thrown up in the air, it gets blown to the side, whereas the true wheat is a bit heavier, so it falls to the ground. So then the farmer takes the wheat away to be processed and used, but the chaff is burned because it's useless. So it's actually a very good image of judgment. And it matches well with some other later parables where the wheat and the chaff grow together, but one day there'll be a separation on Judgment Day, where the wheat will be sent one way, the chaff will be sent the other way. John the Baptist here says that's exactly what the Messiah will do during his ministry. He's going to separate those in the kingdom of God from those not in the kingdom of God. In fact, John the Baptist here goes further. He says the chaff, he will burn in a fire that will never go out. Notice he's talking about Jesus here, the Messiah. The chaff, he will burn in a fire that will never go out, or more literally, unquenchable fire. This is the image we're supposed to get here is the Messiah will burn those who are not fit for the kingdom in unquenchable fire. So it's strong teaching. John the Baptist here says that anyone who does not follow the Messiah's commandments will be judged at the final judgment and will basically end up in hell. And this is developed more later in the Gospels. This links pretty well to what John the Baptist said earlier in verse 7 about the coming wrath. So John the Baptist envisions that part of the kingdom of God coming is that there'll be wrath on those who don't follow God. And he's bringing this out more explicitly now. So John's metaphor is clear. We can't get around it. John's metaphor is that the Messiah, when he comes, will separate the good from the bad. Those who produce good fruit 
and repent will be admitted into the kingdom, and those which don't will be cast by the Messiah into the unquenchable fire. Often we hear these teachings of John the Baptist and think, wow, he's a very strong preacher, but we should keep in mind that Jesus himself uses the exact same imagery for hell and in fact says even stronger things. Verse 18, Luke says, As well as this, there were many other things John said to exhort the people and to announce the good news to them. So Luke tells us there's other things John the Baptist said which are not recorded. Same as Jesus. There's things that both of them would have said that we just don't have written down. But Luke here mentions specifically that John the Baptist preached good news. And the good news is the coming of the kingdom and the Messiah. That is always the good news, the coming of the kingdom of God. And John the Baptist foresees that it's coming very soon. So Luke is now going to tell us about John's ultimate fate. Now that actually happens in the future. So it doesn't happen later on the same day because there's other things. Jesus himself still has to be baptized by John the Baptist. So Luke is kind of going into the future a bit to tell us what will ultimately happen to John the Baptist. That what ultimately happens to John the Baptist, his beheading, is not actually narrated in detail in Luke's gospel. Matthew and Mark tell us about it, but Luke doesn't tell us about it. So maybe that's why he briefly mentions this here instead. So verse 19, this is not in today's lectionary reading, but I think it's a good a good way to finish this off because you'll never hear these verses otherwise in the lectionary. So verse 19, Herod the Tetrarch. Now this is Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great. After Herod the Great died, he governed Galilee. So this is the northern part of Israel, as well as Perea, the south and, southeastern part of Israel. So Uh, Herod the Tetrarch is actually the boss of Galilee, where Jesus lives later, and also Perea, which is where John the Baptist does his ministry. And we know Herod the Tetrarch did this from 1 BC and until AD 39. So this is Herod Antipas. We're going to see more of him as Luke's gospel goes on. In fact, Jesus himself will have a trial eventually before Herod Antipas. Here, Luke says, Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife. So what's going on here? Herodias, that's a female, is actually the daughter of another one of Herod's brothers. So that makes Herod her half-uncle. Also, Herod has another brother called Philip who originally married Herodias. So this woman Herodias is Herod Antipas's sister-in-law and niece all at the same time, and he wants to marry her. It's a very convoluted family tree. So the big issue here is that Herod Antipas marries his brother's ex-wife. And that is against Jewish law because Herod and Herodias both have divorced their respective first spouses in order to marry each other. So basically, they lived together for a long time in open adultery. Everyone knew they did. And then they divorced their previous spouses to uh, come together. The law of Moses makes it clear that you can't covet another man's wife. And this Herod Antipas calls himself a Jew, so he should be bound by the Jewish law. And in particular, Leviticus chapter 20 verse 21 says it's unlawful to take the wife of your brother while the brother is still living. There's actually a very specific law in there. So John the Baptist correctly perceives that Herod Antipas is breaking this Jewish law, and in fact, he's as the king of the Jews, in a sense, in that area, he's not setting a very good example. So John the Baptist speaks out against him. And so apparently, John the Baptist has been publicly declaring to people about how Herod is a sinner, 
And that makes sense because Herod Antipas is the tetrarch of Perea. That's the area where he's doing ministry. So it seems John the Baptist was telling his audience in Perea something like, you know Herod, the king of this region, don't be like him. We know from the other Gospels that Herod Antipas was genuinely interested in John the Baptist. So maybe Herod Antipas actually traveled to see John preach. And maybe that's when John... Um, openly rebuked him. It's not entirely clear when this happened, but either way, Herod Antipas hears what John the Baptist is saying about him. John the Baptist preaches repentance for everyone, including for rulers, and he's willing to risk his life for his message. He's a true prophet. And then in verse 20, Luke tells us there are other evil things that Herod had done. So John the Baptist was preaching about all sorts of evil things that Herod Antipas was doing. Luke goes on, Herod added this to them all, that he shut up John in prison. So Herod Antipas has enough of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is put in chains in prison in Herod's territory, and history tells us that the imprisonment was in a spot called Macarus, which is east of the Dead Sea. It's actually pretty close to where John the Baptist was preaching. We know from the other Gospels that it's actually more Herodias, his new wife, that has a problem with John the Baptist. She's the one who tells Herod Antipas that we need to arrest this man. So it's more to please Herodias that he arrests John the Baptist, because Herod apparently doesn't mind John the Baptist. He's actually quite fond of him, it would seem. But to please his wife Herodias, he puts him in prison. And later, he's actually beheaded. That's not narrated in Luke's gospel, but it's narrated in Matthew 14 and Mark 6. As we'll see, though, Herod Antipas's treatment of John the Baptist is going to mirror his treatment of Jesus. So when you get to chapter 9 of Luke, verses 7 to 9, there's some interesting stuff that happens there with Herod Antipas where he thinks that Jesus is John the Baptist uh, reincarnated, basically. So that's in chapter 9 of Luke. So the next section here of Luke chapter 3 is verse 21 to 22. That's the baptism of Jesus. That is read on the feast of the baptism of the Lord in year C. Let's now move to the Catechism of the Catholic Church. There's three short paragraphs to look at. Paragraph 535 is about Jesus' baptism. Jesus' public life begins with his baptism by John in the River Jordan. John preaches a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. A crowd of sinners, tax collectors and soldiers, Pharisees and Sadducees and prostitutes come to be baptized by him. Paragraph 2447 is about love for the poor. Here's where it gets quite, quite practical and tells us what we need to do based on what John the Baptist's advice is in this passage. The works of mercy are charitable actions by which we come to the aid of our neighbor in his spiritual and bodily necessities. Instructing, advising, consoling, comforting are spiritual works of mercy as are forgiving and bearing wrongs patiently. The corporal works of mercy consist especially in feeding the hungry sheltering the homeless, clothing the naked, visiting the sick and imprisoned, and burying the dead. Among all these, giving alms to the poor is one of the chief witnesses to fraternal charity. It is also a work of justice pleasing to God. So that last line there where it talks about giving alms to the poor is pleasing to God, it references here what John the Baptist says about if you have uh, two tunics, give one away. If you have too much food, give it to someone who has none. Clearly, that's a prerequisite for getting into the kingdom in John the Baptist's eyes. Paragraph 696 is about symbols of the Holy Spirit, and here it's talking about fire. John the Baptist, who goes before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah, proclaims Christ as the one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. 
Jesus will say of the Spirit, I came to cast fire upon the earth, and would that it were already kindled. So we'll leave it there for today. I hope you've learned something new and continue to share this podcast around. As a small independent ministry, it can only grow when you guys, the listeners, tell other people about it. Make sure you've subscribed and please leave a positive review on iTunes or on YouTube or wherever you're listening and continue to keep this ministry in your prayers and we'll continue to look at the Gospels in the coming days. Thank you.